It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a public affair. It's Wednesday, October 26th. That means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to volunteer powered, listener sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We have a fabulous doubleheader on our show today. For the first half of the show, we're going to talk uh, about the recent report just released from Alverno College about the status of women in elected office nationally, but also here in Wisconsin. Why are the numbers not as high as they should be? They should be years and years after working to affirmatively raise the profile of women leaders in our community. We're going to talk with... um, the director of the Research Center for Women and Girls at Alverno College, and learn a little bit more about the recent report and what are things that we as a community can do to support uh, and encourage women to run for office throughout Wisconsin and beyond. Then for the second half of the show, we have been talking nonstop about Wisconsin politics. Uh, Over the last few weeks makes sense. The election is coming up. But there's so much happening nationally as well. And for the second half of the show, we're going to talk with a reporter based in Pennsylvania about the U.S. Senate race happening there in Pennsylvania, one of the most competitive Senate races along with here in Wisconsin. So I'm excited to talk about that. They just had their first debate, their first and only debate yesterday in the Pennsylvania Senate race. So we're going to learn more about what is going on there. So let's get the conversation started. All right. For the first half of the show, like we said, we're going to be talking with Lindsay Harness. She is the executive director of Re- at the Research Center for Women and Girls at Alverno College. And they just released um, the Wisconsin Women in Public Life elected officials uh, report. And they released that report on a sort of semi-annual basis. Anyhow, Lindsay's going to tell us more about that. Hello, Lindsay, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so fantastic to have you. So let's sort of start with the big picture. What are the key takeaways from this report? So the key takeaways um, are that we've come a long way in terms of gender equity and political representation, but we still have a ways to go. Uh, Some of the other takeaways are about the gender-based challenges that women face that may impede them from running for public office, or it may prove to be um, difficult or a challenge and obstacle when they are in office. And then we also have motivators for why women run for public office, as well as some recommendations uh, for how we can improve gender equity and political representation. And this report, Alverno College, wonderfully, and and the work that you do, you know, with the Research Center for Women and Girls, um, puts out reports and statements about women in elected office on a regular basis. How does the report this year compare to the work and research that you've seen in past years? So we actually did this uh, report as a way of um, honoring and uh, building on a report that was done in 1970 by the Research Center. And at that time, it was um, known as the Research Center on Women. And the report was in 1970 was looking at why is there not more women running for public office? So um, coming to the 50th anniversary of the Research Center for Women and Girls, uh, when we started this research project, which began in 2020, uh, we decided to like return to that data and also build on it to see, okay, what has changed? What's the same? Um, And what we found was that, of course, there were some changes. We have more uh, women that are running for public office, but we still have some of the gender-based challenges that existed um, in the 70s as well. And I think it's important to talk about sort of, first of all, achievements that have been made 
um, and that women and girls, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about um, and sort of an intro to the report talks about how women and girls are more likely to be involved in civic activity, more likely to vote, more likely to serve their communities through volunteering. Um, yet they still remain underrepresented in elected office. Talk about the dichotomy on that. Yeah, so research projects that have been done um, by other researchers in the United States have found that women are more likely to be involved in their communities. Um, They are more likely to vote, um, but they're not equally represented in public office. And so the question remains, like, why is that? If we know that women, um, and from a young age, girls, will get involved in their communities and they care about what happens in their communities, why do they not have an equal voice on the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we wanted to know why, what is that? There has to be some obstacles there. Are they the same obstacles that we found in 1970? Are they the ones that have been found in other reports done by other researchers um, beyond Alverno? Uh, And what are some of the current day issues that they face? And can we talk about some of the facts too, d- just mm-hmm. sort of so we break it down? We're not just speaking generically, but we we have some numbers. First of all, um, nationally, women currently hold twenty seven point three percent of the seat in Congress. Women currently hold just twenty four percent of the seats in the United States Senate. Um, for statewide elected offices, um, women hold thirty one percent of um, statewide elected offices and women hold 31% of state and state legislatures. And here in Wisconsin, the population of Wisconsin, 50% is women and only 25% of people in elected office in Wisconsin are women. Are those, tell me about those numbers. So those numbers are, um, They were done by the Wisconsin Women's Council, who helped sponsor um, this report, along with uh, the Women's Fund of Greater Milwaukee. And so they've done a lot of work on um, updating their statistics and uh, just keeping tabs on where we are with gender equity and uh, racial equity and other demographics. And so if you if people want to know more about those specific statistics, they can go to the Research Center for Women and Girls um, website. Uh, and it ha- we have different infographics there that break it down by county, by organization, so on and so forth. And so what we found in this report when uh, the Women's Wisconsin Council was helping us is that we have 50% population of women in Wisconsin but the numbers of women who are elected into office just are not the same. They're not representative, especially when we know Wisconsin women will be involved in their communities and they're interested in giving back into their communities. So it was just an indication to us that there is um, something happening there. And again, this report really sought to ask the question of what are the pathways that women take and what improvements can be made. So let's talk about some of the challenges then. Um, Why are women not running for office? Um, Some of it is, is there a lack, are you seeing, of political ambition or desire to be in politics? It looks like the answer is no. Yeah, the answer is no to that. Uh, I would say, you know, that's it's a big question, right, about why women are not running And we try to break it down um, by asking some specific questions. And the people who we interviewed and surveyed um, for this particular report had ran and had been in elected office at the time. So they were successful. So those were our respondents. So it'd be interesting to also um, interview and survey women who ran for public office but maybe were not elected or women who thought about running for public office but never did. So I say all that to say in the context of our respondents, we are people who have been elected into office. And what we discovered um, in our interviews in the survey is that there was a hesitancy to run before some of these women ran for public office. And that hesitancy um, came, it, it involved a lot of different things to be honest for example um it there was a concern about uh safety um and safety being physical safety mental health safety 
Mm. Um, and what we know from other studies uh, beyond the research center's report and some of the reports we've done in the past is that women are more likely to be harassed. So women who are running for political office are more likely than men to be harassed. They're more likely to receive an email that not only criticizes their positions or their values, but also criticizes their appearance. It will or they'll get threats to their family. And so the people who responded to our survey and interviews talked about this real fear um, and about how they had to consider their own safety as well as their family's safety. Another challenge is that women we know from gender socialization, gendered roles, is women are seen as nurturers um, more so than men. And so there was a real concern for the women who had families, um, especially those who had children, about how this time would be taken away from their family. Would they be able to um, do both roles, political role as well as the nurture in their family. What we know from um, studies about gendered roles is that men often don't uh, face that same scrutiny. Um, they don't get asked questions when running for public office or they don't get asked as much questions about running for public office. What about your children? You know, are you going to have time for your children? Um, and we know from gender socialization that that becomes an embedded expectation women will have for themselves because they've been told that they should care about that. Um, and so that was a challenge that people talked about, about how they were worried about how it might take away or the questions they would get asked about that or whether they would be perceived as a quote unquote bad mother uh, for lending them their time to the community. And then the other uh, challenge um, about it is that uh, fundraising as well as just some of the other uh, nuts and bolts of political office um, that come with it, like being able to raise money, being able to attend all the meetings, um, getting your name out there, networking can be a challenge for women, especially if they've never run for public office before. I'm just sitting here nodding. Uh, Lindsay, I know we <laughs> talked before the start of the show how I spent, you know, um, 16 plus years on the Dane County Board and all of this is true and it's as true as it was when I first ran in 2006 to when I left office just this year in 2022 of just the impact. I remember campaigning when I was pregnant and the conversations that that triggered and I was like my husband doesn't have to walk around right now letting people know that he's about to have a kid. I can't not have a kid conversation because I'm pregnant. I remember nursing right. My, right, nursing my child on the county board floor, and I remember bringing my kids to meetings, and it, it it's almost like this no-win situation if you, you're there and your kids are at home, so you're a bad mother. But then I bring my kids to meetings, and people are like, oh, look, Carousel brought our kids. Well, I'm like, you all have kids. Why don't any of you bring your kids to, to meetings? And it was sort of this, you had to have this thick skin and this level of defiance and sort of uber confidence and some of that frustrates me so much in that you know there are people that have so many strengths that I have none of that I would love to you know we want to have an office and some of the strengths that I have though that people have you know empathy and kindness and more soft skills that I have and um, they don't have the toughness that I have and their voices are missing because you need the toughness to survive and make it through those things. And that always made me so angry in that, you know, I I care about politics and I also have a personality that allowed me to serve. And if I didn't have a personality that allowed me to serve, all the... Um, loss that I would have been I wouldn't have been able to achieve all the things that I wanted to achieve without that level of toughness absolutely yeah and I think it what we also found in our report is and I was a little surprised by it and looking back I'm like why was I surprised by that but I didn't realize how much it mattered um, to women's pathways to public office that they were asked by someone yeah. to run. Yeah. They had that personal um, communication. And, you know, I inside I'm 
kind of chuckling because I remember having um, reading an interview transcript and one of the respondents was saying that they had to be asked like three to five times by the same person before they decided to run. And then they're finally, okay, I'll run, you know, but what was important about that that resonates with the story you were just telling me is that people recognize the unique strengths that this woman had, as well as some of the other women that uh, responded to the survey and we interviewed. And so they called that those strengths out and they said, you know, we need your voice. But it took persistence, right, because of the concerns or because maybe the respondent wasn't originally interested in running for public office or never considered that as part of her journey. Um, And so it was just really important, she said, and other respondents said that Someone asked them, and then once they ran for public office and were elected public office, they realized how much their strengths were needed. That there's no like unique strength that um, politicians will share across the board. That we need a myriad of them. We need right. a variety of strengths in order for us to have equal representation. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the comments about appearance that just it—it's mm. sort of shocking at how often. People, even in, for me, there were comments of kindness, comments of people that, well, it didn't come off as kind, but they thought they were being kind. These were from supporters of mine that said, hey, FYI, when you wear that outfit, it's not very flattering on you. And I'm like, okay, thanks for sharing. I've had people tell me um, about colleagues that were running for office. Hey, can you tell her when she wears that lipstick, it really looks bad. Hey, can you tell her she, you know, her figure doesn't look good and she needs better, you know, people talk to me about better bras, better things for other people. And then colleagues have told me that other people tell them things about me. And it's just sort of fascinating because no one has ever told me to, you know, just FYI, I want them to succeed appearance about my male colleagues no one ever told me he should do this because i want them to succeed and people aren't hearing their words they're only looking at the image but people are telling me that about the women that are colleagues it's shocking yeah yeah and this is what uh we know in the women and gender studies field is called the likability trap Mm -hmm. um in which that there's a belief that women cannot win um in um, campaigns, they cannot win if they're not likable. And the same argument is not made for men. And we have statistics, we have facts, and we have lived experiences that attest to this. But that there's this idea that women have to not only be competent, but they have to be likable. Whereas men only have to be competent. It's okay if we don't like them, right? And so we've seen this um, being played out and talked about in the news and public discourse, especially in the last um, eight years, you know, and it's, and it's becoming more talked about, I think, but this idea of the likability trap and that women could be super competent and qualified for the political office in which they're running, but if they're not likable because of their appearance, because of maybe the way they, they speak, um, because of maybe something with their background, then they are likely not to be um, chosen uh, in their campaign or um, people will not vote for them just because of like that likability yeah. is missing. yeah how much of that do you think is just a reflection of the general society that we're in I mean women's appearance is scrutinized in in every profession everywhere right. we go right it just we have to we talk about it in politics because it's a public publicly elected office to get yeah. the to to get to the the job that you want, but it's just so interesting how, you know, I used I used to say in office I wanted I wanted to be the ugliest woman in power, and like I sort of joked of like I want to get uglier every year and more powerful <laughs> just to just just 
just to sort of shatter that. And what was interesting, the fact that I would say that, though, is quite a statement. And the fact that so many people would come to me and be like, oh, Carousel, you're you're pretty. You're pretty. And I'm like, I wasn't fishing for a compliment. You were missing oh, my point. you needed that reassurance. Right. They're like, yeah. don't worry, Carousel. You're not that bad. And I'm like, mm, that's not the conversation I'm trying to have. I'm trying to point out the elephant in the room and shatter the perception. And it was... Right. But then you talk about it and bring on the conversation. It's such this tricky trap that I feel like is the story of living in America, the level of sexism and um, image consciousness that we have placed on women and girls. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of this is um, embedded in gender socialization and gendered roles and gendered expectations, which is all under the um, umbrella of patriarchy and mm-hmm. sexism, right? And it, it's all about gender socialization and what we expect of different genders um, and then the perceptions that we derive from those expectations and then how we teach people about their gender and what we have to say about gender and um, gender is a social construct. You know, it is gender is something that society has created and the meaning that we've put around it. And so this gender socialization gets embedded into all aspects of our life. And so it, we see it play out in um, the political field as well as media, as well as education. I mean, it's everywhere, right? right and right. so it's just all part of that gender socialization that we have to work to unlearn. Um, and I think most importantly, we have to learn to question it um, and like really interrogate it about like, is that actually uh, something that we should be saying about women or about uh, gender? Or is that something that we really need to interrogate and unlearn it for ourselves? We're talking right now with Lindsay Harness. She is the executive director of the Research Center for Women and Girls at Alverno College. We're talking about the um, most recent report put out by um, the women, uh, sorry, the Research Center for Women and Girls about women in public life now in 2022. So, Lindsay, what happens now? What are some things that we can talk about to make a difference? Um, I love that, you know, the report doesn't just say all the things we're talking about, but then says, so here are things that we can do. Talk to Absolutely. us about some of those. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, it was important for um, the Research Center for Women and Girls at Averno for uh, this report to be seen as a call to action as a way of recognizing how far we've come the challenges that still exist that we really have to question and we have to analyze as well as like um, celebrating those accomplishments that have happened and then saying, okay, here are the next steps of action, you know, what you can do. And so in our report, uh, which I'd like to mention is available in electronic copy to the public for free on our website. So if anyone's interested in reading it, um, it's available. And in the report, we can the, we can put a link, by the way, when we um, post great. the show so that everyone has access to it. All right. Go ahead, Lindsay. Awesome. <laughs> so in the report at the very back um, of the report, we talk about the conclusion and the recommendations. Uh, and so one of the things we talk about is encouraging political ambition early in life. Um, because we know that gendered socializations and learning gender roles happens at a very young age. And there's some really interesting studies about when girls start to perceive themselves as leaders or when they stop perceiving themselves as um, mm. potential leaders. And so encouraging political ambition early in life is one of our number one um, recommendations as this way of unlearning gender socialization. And what's important there to remember is that it doesn't mean that you need to necessarily go to your niece and say, hey, I think you should run for office. Like, in the future, but more like, hey, how can you get involved in your community and how can you use your strengths as a way of empowering people around you? So that was one of them. The other one, um, well, we have a list of recommendations and there was a great study done by um, Erickson, Hill, Kono and Solomon at the University of Wisconsin Madison Division. And we put their recommendations into the report because I just think that it was so important. But there's different phases of what people can do, uh, which includes encouraging women to run for public office, of course. Um, And so then the last thing I would say is that I, I just 
almost plead with people who are listening that when you see microaggressions happening in regards uh, to gender socialization, when a woman is being challenged, her ideas being challenged because of the likability trap, push back on it in a way that is civil um, and safe, of course, but push back on that question and engage people in dialogue about it. Why is this happening? Um, is it about this person's positions and their values and their strengths that they can bring to um, office or is it about something more? Um, and what should we be, what kind of questions should we be asking about that? And then of course, vote. Yeah, please vote. <laughs> I mean, Lindsay, I think all of this is so fantastic. And I will say something that I also loved in the report was how it talked about the importance of local office as, you know, a, a building a bench for people that run for higher office. And I think there's so many things that we can do to make a difference to elect uh, women and people of color and people that are usually at the table in local office and also to make local office more accessible. I think of the Madison City Council and, you know, how little sometimes they pay and how many hours they're required to do. And I know there were referendum questions about that here in Madison uh, a couple years ago, the referendum didn't pass, but it started a conversation of why do we have a structure right now the way that it is and who does it keep out of the room when you do that? Mm, an important conversation for sure. Yes, and supporting the networks and the organizations out there that are helping encourage women and providing them platforms. For example, I'm thinking of Emerge is one, is a political, or not a political organization, but it's an organization that is helping women run for public office. The League of Women Voters um, also does quite a bit around this. And so if you don't know a person to encourage to run for public office, you're like, I don't know where to go, um, where to start. Beyond encouraging youth and everyone to get involved uh, in local offices in their local communities, you can also support these networks um, that are providing the training and the platforms that will help improve the pathways for women to public office. Well, Lindsay, it has been fabulous talking with you. Thank you for all the work that you are doing, for coming and talking to us about this really important report. And um, it's just Great to keep thinking about how we can support and advance women in leadership. It's just great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Lindsay Harness. She is the executive director at the Research Center for Women and Girls at Alverno College. And their newly released report is Women in Public Like elected officials, um, the Alverno report for 2020, 2022, but really looking at the big picture of women in public office and our favorite part about encouraging um, all of us to do things that can make a difference to support women and others in office. Thank you so much again, Lindsay, for joining us. And now we're going to transition to the second half of the show. Um, as we were talking as we've all been talking for the last several, several months about the elections here in Wisconsin, we've all been talking nonstop on this radio and beyond about the uh, Wisconsin U.S. Senate um, campaign and election happening between incumbent Republican Ron Johnson here in Wisconsin and Lieutenant Governor Democratic Mandela Barnes. Um, but... Really, this is just, of course, one piece of the 50 seats in the U.S. Senate. Uh, a third are up this year. And there is an incredibly close race happening in the state of Pennsylvania. And so we're really excited right now to talk about what's happening in Pennsylvania. We have J.D. Prose joining us. Hello, J.D. Are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Good Thank afternoon. you. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, let me tell Thanks everyone a little bit about you. JD Prose is the state political reporter for PenLive.com. Previously, uh, JD worked for USA Today Network's Pennsylvania State Bureau and the Beaver County Times in Western Pennsylvania. JD has also covered politics and county government for the former Gazette newspapers in suburban Maryland. And he holds a degree in journalism from the University of Maryland and a master's in communication from American University in Washington, D.C. So, JD, there's a lot going on in Pennsylvania right now. I'm, I'm so glad we were <laughs> able to catch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a, a busy um, 
24 hours, to say the least. But can we sort of start with the big picture? Who are the candidates running for the U.S. Senate uh, in Pennsylvania? Uh, you have, on the Democratic side, you have Lieutenant Governor uh, John Fetterman. Uh, he's a, a former mayor also of a small borough called Braddock, uh, just east of uh, Pittsburgh, sort of one of those uh, downtrodden uh, former steel towns that that uh, really dot western Pennsylvania that uh, really have been struggling uh, to uh, to come back from the demise of the steel industry and um, that have never really gotten back on their feet. And uh, he was mayor there uh, for uh, about 14 years, I believe, and uh, became lieutenant governor a couple years ago and uh, now is making his uh, second run uh, for U.S. Senate. Uh, he uh, made a previous run but finished third in the Democratic primary. Huh. On the Republican side, okay. Dr. Mehmet Oz, obviously uh, famous from his uh, eponymous TV show uh, that was on the air. Uh, and, um, you know, he's been endorsed by uh, former President Donald Trump. And, um, you know, his uh, uh, you know, move from New Jersey uh, just uh, in 2021, moved back uh, to Pennsylvania. He went to medical school uh, out at Penn uh, in eastern Pennsylvania and uh, moved back here to seek the nomination. Uh, he had a close primary uh, in, in the spring. Um, you know, while Fetterman sort of coasted and uh, didn't have uh, really much competition in the end, uh, Oz and uh, Dave McCormick battled it out, uh, really, uh, you know, uh, recounts and everything. And so it was a couple weeks after uh, the primary that um, that Oz got the nomination uh, officially. On the governor's side, do you want Sure, we can talk. Well, if we have time, we'll definitely talk about the governor's side. To to okay. mention that just a little, there is a governor's race happening in Pennsylvania as well. <laughs> yes, uh, you have uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, and um, he's taking on uh, State Senator uh, Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate. And uh, that race, um, really all the polling has uh, uh, come out as uh, Shapiro comfortably ahead uh, by uh, uh, double digits, okay. uh, virtually all of them uh, have him comfortably ahead. While in the Senate race, uh, you know the those early uh, some early double digit leads by Fetterman have shrunk and shrunk, and now you see things come uh, you know within the margin uh, of error of three or four percent, or if not tied. Uh, I haven't seen anything yet that has Oz leading uh, in any polls. Uh, it's usually Fetterman up by two, three, four, five, something like that, uh, and and the margin of error being you know three, four, five, somewhere in there. Uh, so ostensibly, you know, uh, most of these polls, you could say the Senate race is a, a statistical toss-up at this point. Gotcha, gotcha. And I know there was the debate last night. Before we get into that, I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into um, John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. Uh, I was listening to NPR yesterday, and they described both of them of, as icons. I thought that was a really interesting word choice. Um, they're just really <laughs> unique characters, not your sort of stereotypical vision of someone running for Senate. Can you right. talk to us about the uniqueness of these two individuals? Right. I wouldn't necessarily say icon. I wouldn't uh, either. I, I would Maybe say, they meant iconic. Maybe. Uh, I would say big personalities. Um, you know, uh, this is the craziest race I've ever covered. I've, I've <laughs> been in, uh, I live in Pittsburgh and, 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 uh, sort of, uh, you know, hone my teeth on, uh, on Western Pennsylvania bare knuckle politics and, and state legislative races and, and then moved on to, you know, statewide things. And, um, I, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Obviously the interest that this race draws uh, when typically, you know, a, a Pennsylvania Senate race might get some notice from, uh, you know, some national pubs, the Washington Post, maybe the New York Times, because they pay attention to D.C. and, and Congress. Uh, but now it's ratcheted up to the point where 
uh, you know, it's everyone. It's uh, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, the Daily Wire, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, CNN, <laughs> Fox. Uh, I, I've seen stories from the L.A. Times and, and Florida papers because of uh, Oz's uh, residency or at least ownership of properties down there. Um, it's fast and furious every single day. Uh, is insane. There's uh, 10 <laughs> stories to write every single day. If wow. You're working on one story, writing another story. And, and it's the personalities. I, uh, uh, when Fetterman came back after his stroke, uh, you know, he suffered a stroke on May 13th, four days before the primary. Yes. Um, and, and was off the campaign trail, um, uh, you know, in person making, you know, not making uh, any appearances at rallies or anything. Uh, his first one back was August 12th up in Erie, up in uh, northwest Pennsylvania. And uh, at that rally, uh, you know, there were plenty of reporters coming out because of the anticipation of, of you know, what he would be like. And uh, there was a Vanity Fair reporter there. And I was like, what? Yeah, and I was talking with him. And I was like, why is Vanity Fair coming to a, uh, a, an August rally of a Pennsylvania candidate? But it was because of the personalities that he said, you know, obviously Dr. Oz has his TV fame. And, and everyone knows him and the connection to Oprah Winfrey and, uh, you know, the approval of Trump. And, and then you have Fetterman, who uh, has sort of gained notoriety over the years uh, as, uh, you know, mayor of, uh, of Braddock, uh, you know, the gritty former steel town and what he's trying to do there. You know, he's been on uh, the cover of Rolling Stone and profiled in the New York Times magazine and all these other publications. And, uh, you know, and you just have these uh, two, uh, you know, big personalities in Fetterman's case, you know, literally uh, physically larger in life, you know, six foot eight. And, you know, now, you know, he's lost a lot of weight, but, you know, still tipping the scales probably over 300 pounds. He's a huge man uh, physically. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the scowl, the, uh, you know, uh, not last night he wore a suit, but the, the hoodies, the Carhartt hoodies, the shorts, the tattoos, uh, you know, he just has this persona uh, that draws people in. Well, and, and he, uh, and he, the fact that he wears hoodies and shorts, and he really wants people to know know who he is, and is campaigning a lot. It seems on that connection mm -hmm. to working class, you know, you know, Western Pennsylvania. That he's, right. I mean, not, he's not not an inch from his roots versus Doctor no, Oz, no. that has a completely different persona. Right, right. I mean, Fetterman is is you know not. You know, his roots aren't blue collar. You know, he, he's admitted to that. You know, he grew up in a comfortable environment. He was uh, on his way to a career in the family's insurance uh, business. Uh, but because of, uh, you know, he had a friend who died and it sort of really, um, you know, he says opened his eyes to what was going on in the world and the, and, and the direction of his life and um, sort of comes across as an early you know, midlife crises almost of, of what he wanted his life to be and uh, ended up volunteering and, uh, and, and teaching students, uh, you know, GED programs. He came to Pittsburgh. Then he went to Braddock uh, and was teaching uh, students, uh, you know, uh, getting them uh, their GEDs, got involved in the community, ultimately obviously ran for mayor, famously won by one vote, and then, uh, you know, kept going uh, from there on to the lieutenant governor's seat, and uh, ultimately. Talk about Dr. Oz as well. I mean, he right, has this huge telephone, uh, uh, television persona, but there was also what's sort of interesting is if Fetterman is sort of the local town guy, Dr. Oz was the New Jerseyan that wasn't from here, and he has really bridged that gap tremendously over the last few months um he's tried to okay uh, Fetterman reminds him about it uh every chance he gets of uh -huh. course, i bet uh, with the ads uh you know uh, i mean he does have roots like i said he went to uh he went to school uh, medical school in pennsylvania his wife is from uh eastern pennsylvania uh her parents are there and, and they moved there and they have you know they've uh oz and his wife have uh, bought property in eastern pennsylvania um, so that, you know, there's, um, you know, no, there's not zero connection, uh, but 
you know, when he's been gone for decades, uh, you know, lived in uh, New Jersey, close to Manhattan, where he filmed his uh, TV show and everything. And then he's moved here. Uh, it, it's really opened up. Uh, he's really opened himself up to the carpetbagger, uh, you know, attack. Yeah. And, you know, he's just coming here. He's not P.A. Uh, you know, uh, Fetterman's people and Democrats, obviously, uh, you know, even though he can be attacked for, uh, you know, Republicans say Fetterman's a fraud. You know, he's he's a, you know, he's got this blue collar image. He's got the tattoos, but he's not, you know, from that. Um, and, you know, the art, the, you know, conversely, the argument is, well, Oz isn't from here at all. Mm-hmm. You know, Oz, Oz is, is in, from New Jersey or uh, California or Florida or wherever, <laughs> uh, you know, he has uh, 10 mansions, which uh, Fetterman brought up repeatedly last night about the homes that uh, Oz owns around the country um, that, uh, you know, do both of those arguments counterbalance? themselves you know it obviously like most of this stuff just depends on which way you fall politically mm-hmm. and uh you know do you uh overlook you know uh yeah oz might not be from here but i agree with him and he's the candidate running for the senate and i like him and right. you know fetterman yeah okay he's you know he he wasn't uh you know born in steel town and worked in the mill for 20 years but uh you know he chose to go to braddock you know, and 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 work with the uh, community, and and still lives there. Uh, right. You know, across uh, from the from the last remaining uh, steel plant there. So, um, you know, it, it all depends on on which way you're coming from, and 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 how voters, uh, you know, justify both of those in in their own mind. So interesting to sort of hear these different juxtapositions, similarities and differences and right how how uh, to justify one versus the other. And mm-hmm. before we get into a little bit of uh, a conversation about the issues and what's happening there in Pennsylvania um, on the ground, the other important thing to talk about, as you mentioned, is that Fetterman had a stroke. And how much is there sort of this conversation? And I guess this also leads into the debate that happened last night. There was this, it seemed like the whole world was watching this debate so much more than conversations. I hear about debates even here in Wisconsin, where it was, what's he going to sound like? What does someone with a stroke sound like? Do we think he's going to be someone that can serve office and then you sort of do this double check of yourself of am I being discriminatory against someone that had a stroke that maybe has a disability and there's this whole different level before anyone even says a word about the policies that they stand for right yeah and that was the expectation Uh, I mean there were uh, reporters here from uh, Britain South Korea uh, I mean, I've never seen uh, interest like that in a U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania uh, by any stretch wow. of the imagination. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, uh, again, the anticipation when he came out in August uh, at that rally uh, in Erie after having a stroke. And, um, you know, it, it, it was awkward. It was painful to watch. Uh, he only spoke for 12 minutes. Uh, he was speaking in front of uh, about 1,400 people. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it, it was awkward, but at the same time, you had to take that into context of, you know, he just had a stroke a couple months ago. Um, you know, maybe I couldn't do that. It's simply right. admirable that he was able to get up on stage and speak in front of, of 1400 people, even for just 12 minutes in clipped stilted sentences. Um, you know, you, you, can't ignore the optics of that, obviously. Uh, you know, we're talking politics, and that's what uh, some of this stuff is based on. Uh, you know, I talked to the people at that rally, obviously Democrats who supported him, um, who, you know, were main, you know, were, you know, uh, incredibly uh, pleased, you know, saying he sounded great, he's going to recover. Uh, you know, my my uncle had a stroke and he's fine. My mom had a stroke and he's fine. So they they understood what he's going through. And, uh, you know, his therapy um, has continued. Uh, he started doing other interviews. He's obviously using closed captioning because of uh, ongoing uh, auditory processing issues uh, of, of being able to hear uh, what is said, process that, and then uh, reply 
and uh, you know his his campaign, uh, and he has said that there's no cognitive uh, dysfunction. You know, it hasn't affected his cognitive ability. Uh, the the stilted speech um, is a, a reflection of that auditory processing issue uh, that he continues to address. Uh, in speech therapy, and, and and he'll be the first to talk about it. He's repeatedly uh, brought it up uh, in interviews, like he did last night, calling mm-hmm. it the, quote, elephant in the room. He did that uh, a couple weeks ago. He met uh, for an hour with the Penn Live editorial board. Uh, we live-streamed it uh, for an hour on our Facebook page, and, um, you know, he uh, was relaxed. Um, I think that is one of the things people should note in last night's debate, you have to understand context. Uh, you know, it's it's nuanced, and, and that doesn't go a long way in uh, politics nowadays, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, he was, uh, you know, given, you know, 60 seconds, 30 seconds, 15 seconds, respond, right. you know, and that kind of thing last night. Uh, whereas in the uh, meeting with our editorial board, it was a relaxed setting. He was at home. Uh, you know, sitting there in the hoodie, and he used closed captioning, um, but, you know, uh, had none of the issues, really, uh, that he had last night. Uh, you know, he he looked nothing like that. He was uh, much better. So, you know, compared to last night, when it was, I mean, let's be honest, it was awkward. It mm-hmm. was it was uncomfortable uh, to watch frequently, um, you know, someone like that struggle. So you have to uh, understand, you know, where he's coming from. Just the simple fact, as uh, his spokesman said last night, after the fact uh, that you know he was in a hospital bed a couple months ago, uh, you know, uh, you know, recuperating from a stroke, and then uh, and then had uh, uh, you know heart surgery after that, a defibrillator implanted. Uh, so it's incredible that he's even up there. Made it this and that's far. One of the, and, and that's one of the points that Fetterman made. Um, was that you know I'm here I'm I'm not hiding I you, know, you you see what you see you know I'm doing the best I can um, but uh, I'm working on it and uh, and you know here I am JD and, and... JD I want to ask you what's the public's response to that what are you hearing after the debate how do people feel are they are they agreeing that right hey here's a person that is you know, having these challenges and and fighting against them, or are they having concerns um, that he may not be up for the job? Well, again, I think it goes back to the other stuff like with, uh, you know, Oz and New Jersey and everything. It's preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. If if you don't like Fetterman and you watch that, uh, then you're like, he can't do the job. He's incapable of doing the job. Uh, It's sad. It's pathetic. Uh, you know, uh, he, he needs to stay home and just get better and, and that kind of response. Uh, if if you like Fetterman, then it was uh, he was brave uh, to get up there, put himself through that, knowing literally that the world is watching and to get up on that stage and knowing the context, again, of that sort of rapid fire, quick back and forth that, you know, uh, doesn't really help someone who's uh, you know, using closed captioning and experiencing auditory processing issues. It, it's not an ideal situation uh, to put someone like that in, but he's like, you know, I, I'm putting myself uh, here to do this. And and so uh, you're, you're supportive of that. And, and that's what I've seen uh, so far today is, you know, he, he was brave enough. He did a good job under the circumstances. He got his points across uh, and, and Oz, uh, was uh, smug, uh, smirking, um, and 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 said some things um, that are already you know this morning were in uh, in um, attack ads. You know the line about abortion being uh, between uh, a woman doctor, uh, her doctor, and uh, local political leaders, and uh, th- that's already blowing up into ads and and sort of become. Uh, the, the angle that Democrats are taking against Oz. Um, one thing to note, uh, the Fetterman campaign put out last night in the three hours after the debate, uh, they said they raised $1 million. So, so um, I think that says a lot about that support, whether it's uh, you know people fired up uh, about what Oz said or just uh, doubling down on supporting him. There's obviously 
uh, continued support there. That's insane. I mean, the lo- the amount of money that's going into this campaign, it, it seems to be one of the most expensive uh, U.S. Senate races, uh, certainly in the country right now and, you know, in, in history, the, the level of money. Do you think yeah. that, J.D., in our, in our just a few more minutes here, do you think yeah. that the conversation about their personalities and their styles and um, about uh, Fetterman's stroke is... Um, taking precedent over conversations about the substance or is it a little bit of both i hear that you mentioned right the their differences on abortion issues and i know they have differences on criminal justice and economic issues is is that part of the conversation too or not as much when it gets to the general public in pennsylvania uh well it depends on what percentage of the general public and the voters we're talking about. Okay. I think at this point, people's minds are made up. It's that slim undecided margin. And, you know, and are those voters paying attention? You know, like I said, if the, you know, like I said, the, the polls uh, have anywhere, like I said, five, two points, uh, you know, for Fetterman. Um, and a lot of those within the margin of error. So statistically neck and neck. Um are those undecided voters uh, you know, paying attention to a debate last night? Are they picking up on, oh, Fetterman looked awful, he can't serve? Are they picking up on Oz and his abortion comments and uh, I'll support Trump if he runs again? Um, are they picking up on, on anything? Uh, because the, I think the vast majority of people right now have their minds made up hmm. and it, it, you know it, it doesn't matter what was said last night um that uh you know they're going to support their candidate regardless uh so it, it's really about those undecided voters out there and and which way uh they're, they're tilting if they are and and what might push them you know either way you know is it an abortion issue if you're a undecided woman is that enough uh, Oz's comments to go. Okay, well, I'm going with Fetterman, who wants uh, to codify Roe v. Wade into into law. Or you know, are you uh, uh, you know uncertain about Fetterman's uh, performance and ability to serve, and or his record on uh, crime, or you know uh, uh, the economy, or whatever. There's uh, so there's so much to this. There's so many. Pieces. I mean, I really appreciate that. I keep trying to ask you. So, what about this? And 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 pin you down. And your answer <laughs> is, well, it's it's not that simple. Yes, this, but so much more. This is a really complicated race that you're covering. Yep, that's why they hold elections, right? Uh, <laughs> it all gets decided uh, <laughs> next month, or or actually, it's being decided now. We've had mail-in uh, balloting going on now for a couple weeks here in in uh, PA. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was a point of contention with the Oz campaign with the debate last night because mm. it came so late after people had already, had already started uh, voting. voting. Right. Well, right. It's just a fascinating talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us about the race. And I know we're going to keep reading the uh, work that you're doing and many of your other journalistic colleagues until we get to Election Day. Best of luck out there, J.D. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. That was J.D. Prose. Uh, he's the state political reporter for PennLive.com. And I want to thank J.D. Uh, for joining us and thank Lindsay for joining us for the first half of the show. Thanks, Megan, for engineering, Jade for producing, Mary Jo for staffing the phones. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back again next week. And reminder, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic.